Strike podcast in a special episode on Thursday instead of Tuesday because of the organized play announcement. Before I start the show, got to shout out the store that uh, supports the show, BaseBaseGames.com. And if you're coming from an old channel, if you're hearing this via podcast, uh, we did move. Uh, if you didn't get the news last week to the BaseBaseGames.com YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe to that channel to check out all the new videos that will be uploaded on that channel. There are just going to be giveaways. Uh, the content from magic.facespacegames.com is going to go on that channel in the future and live streams of this pod as well. I'm really excited about this podcast because not only do I got all the reliable, my man, Andy, tonight, but we've got a battle now. We've got a battle of Titans. Um, they were jousting over Twitter, over Facebook, many different witty lines from both sides. Really excited to have my man John Stern and Alex Magilton back, both back on the show. Welcome back, and thank you so much for coming on, guys. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, good to be here. All right, and today the OP announcement was announced on Thursday on Twitch. When I got on, roughly twelve hundred people uh, were watching. But but Andy, you you weren't around. You didn't you didn't tune in. You weren't hyped and excited about it. I was at work <laughs> doing bank stuff. <laughs> um, kind of an awkward timing to announce things. I think it's been commented about before. Uh, John, any quick thoughts? Like Thursday afternoon? Like, does it matter? Uh, well, I didn't watch it. I didn't even know it was coming. I knew there was going to be one today. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. The timing doesn't matter to me. I care more about what's written than what's said online. Okay. Uh, let's just get right to. Uh, they posted an uh, organized play article on the mothership and uh, by Blake Rasmussen. Um, and, and quickly, I'll just read the, the five point, uh, points that uh, he posted, which is the first pro tour in 2019 will be February 22 to 24 in Cleveland, Ohio, United States. The format will be announced eight to 12 weeks prior to the tournament. Achieving, uh, number two, achieving a level in the pro club will now grant you that level for two cycles rather than one. Number three, Team Series rules have been posted here, including updates to invites for the top eight teams. Four, the full Pro Tour schedule will be announced in early September on weekly MTG. Number five, we'll be hiring three Pro Tour players as advisors to help us work on more details for next season and beyond. Uh, let's go to number one first, uh, John. My curious question is, uh, is this a change from previous Pro Tours that the format will be announced eight to 12 weeks prior? Um, yeah, it's a change. Usually they announce the formats for the Pro Tours a full year in advance, or they'll announce it, um, like at this time for the next four, basically. Um, it makes, yeah, I mean, it makes some amount of sense. I think they're really considering, uh, how to bring magic to the next level in terms of viewership and what people want to see, but also keeping in mind that what gets played at the Pro Tour has a trickle down effect into what people play you know, at the local stores. So it's a, it's a big decision. Um, I, I think it was probably, so that, so Atlanta is the next one that's standard. So if the pattern holds, it would normally be modern, I guess, but I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. Alex, are you still running as hard as you used to? Um, I haven't been playing as much in the past couple months. Uh, I made silver and the system make made it so that there's a lot less value in keeping silver so i haven't really been as motivated to play mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about this, this news that instead of announcing a year in advance the format uh 
does this make things more exciting, less solvable? I don't know if, if you care too much about this. Uh, I think it's interesting. Um, I do think that it's good to have a departure from what they were doing before, which was very predictable. Uh, I think this opens the possibility for more creative formats than just modern or standard. Uh, imagine, you know, for Pro Tour number three of 2019, they wake up and say, okay, this is going to be a return to Ravnica block constructed. Uh, and they'll bring back that. And none of us knew it was coming, and now we all have to scramble to prepare. I think those types of formats are more interesting to have at the pro level um, because I think that they test different sets of skills uh, that I think a pro Magic player should have. Um, the only problem is those formats don't really uh, push the cards as much because they're, they aren't as repeatable. But I, I like that the announcement opens for that possibility. You, you mean you don't mean actual return to Ravnica? You mean like the new Ravnica? Yeah, the whatever okay. guilds. Is that okay? Um, I guess I that I think that's a an interesting point. I kind of have the opposite view on it though, which is if they announced you know eight months in advance that there's going to be a brawl PT or something or a block constructed, and you know let's just say that it's a format that gets a lot of pushback from the pro community or the community in general. Like this is not something that should be you know, a pro tour format, it's now going to be too late for them to backtrack or change it. If they announce it, you know, basically two months before the PT, um, maybe that's okay. But like based on their, how their announcements have been received recently, I would prefer more lead times so that there can be an adjustment if necessary. Um, I personally don't want to play a, a pro tour on a wacky format. I don't think it's interesting, but you know, some people would like it, I suppose. The, the real question is, like, will you get more viewers doing this kind of thing, right? Like, are more people going to watch, like, the pros being forced to, like, build Return to Return to Ravnica block-constructed decks than they are, like, late-format standard? Is, is that going to be more interesting to watch? Is that going to get more viewers? Or do you think people view to, like, see what decks to play at FNM? Or what decks to play at their PPTQs? Um, I certainly don't have access to the stats. My understanding is that Modern is the most popular format to watch. Do you know if that's true? Oh, yeah. It's by a, such a large margin. Modern is the most popular format. And I think that there's a... I think that the things that attract viewers are um, formats that they're going to play in a competitive format somewhere. I so I think like modern, standard, even then legacy, and then everything else has a huge drop off. Um, so I don't think like a you know a commander pro tour would have. I think people would be like tuning in for the novelty the first time, but I don't know. I, I guess I don't think it would have a high viewership. Um, have they announced the format for the world, world the team series finals yet? Do you know Alex? Uh, I thought that it was going to be Guilds of Ravnica Team Sealed. And so that's going to be interesting to see the viewership of that because normally Team Sealed is pretty low on the viewership role, right? Um, this is a high-profile event featuring new cards. So, um, yeah, I guess it's a good litmus test to see if people 
will tune in for something out of the ordinary because it has like a novelty factor. Is it happening the same time as regular worlds, like like last time? I haven't followed that specifically. Um, I think it's not happening at the same time, but I'm not sure. Because I didn't watch, I would not have watched any of the team series stuff if not if it wasn't during the same time. Yeah, I didn't watch the finals last year. I was aware of it happening. That's about it. Um, John, when you, I, I laugh when your eyebrow raised because I had the same reaction. I was like, <laughs> did Alex like suggest bringing back like, these throwback formats? I'm like, oh, maybe. Like, well, I mean, it, it is like uh, it would be interesting to have sort of an, a one-off pro tour, like a, you know, they had like a two-headed giant pro tour. But I mean, as a competitor. I kind of want it to be about, you know, testing the same skills that people have developed over time. I'm not really interested in an invitational style, try this out format. Like I want it to be about preparation and play and at the highest level. So I'm more of a purist in that sense. I did like block constructed when it was a PT format though. Um, From a deck building standpoint, it's an interesting challenge. Um, But I think they had to get rid of it because they weren't designing cards to work in that format and it wasn't being supported, you know, at the local store level as a format. But so overall, you think this, this might be a good thing? I think it's overall a negative, but a very small one. Okay. Do you think it's just negative from your experience? Cause you're going to be playing in the pro tours, but do you think it could be a positive for the people watching? Cause like the not knowing what the format is. And then there's just like eight weeks of sort of hype. Like it, instead of just knowing that there's going to be a standard pro tour in, in, in four months or whatever, now you don't know what it is. Then you get to get excited, but Ooh, we get to watch this format at the pro tour this time. And then you start thinking about it more and maybe that'll drive up viewership. I don't know. Um, I mean, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of a preparation standpoint. I was thinking about it as a negative in terms of it's now more likely that a bad decision gets made and implemented. Um, because they won't have time to process, to receive feedback and process it. Um, I still think that their intention is probably to make it, you know, standard or modern. I don't think, I don't think this is a means of like introducing these like crazy formats for one pro tour. I mean, it might be a team one or something that would be kind of, that would be really bad to have in a short time frame because you have to form your teams. So I hope they don't do that. Um, I think it's more along the lines of like they don't know if they want to push modern or standard or you know that kind of thing. It's possible uh, that there'd be less like of less heinous decisions because of the pro player advisors now, because now they're like obviously speaking to these people before they make the decisions that directly affect them in a large way. So potentially maybe that could counteract your fear of them making a horrible announcement and then having to redact it when they don't have the time. Yeah, I mean, I have some thoughts on that as well. Uh, but do you want to, like, that's a whole extra topic from their announcement. Um, that could, you know, in some ways be a check and balance, but I don't think it's a guaranteed protection mechanism. Uh, one of the things that so, some people might, uh, there was, it was a big discussion right after the last uh, Team PT. Uh, people were debating on Twitter on the elimination of Limited from, from the Pro Tour. Um, Alex is someone who, who owns a blog called I'm Never Drafting Again. <laughs> Me after every draft. Uh, what do you think about that idea? Uh, I think it would be a good thing overall if they cut Limited from the Pro Tour. Uh, I'm kind of with John in that I like 
preparing for Pro Tours uh, and having to prepare for both a constructed format and a limited format, I think can be a little much sometimes. Uh, I think that the common theme that I hear uh, from people tweeting about watching the Pro Tour is that they don't like watching the limited portion. I think it would improve viewership for the tournament uh, and uh, it would open up the possibility of you know, maybe having one Pro Tour that was all draft and the rest all constructed. Uh, and that would be, a, I don't know, I, I, I didn't mind it when, when that was how it was you know, 10 years ago and I think that it could be time to bring it back now that they're trying to generate views on their platform on Twitch. So when you say, like, I, I don't know the, I wasn't around when they made that switch to the mixed format pro tours. I wasn't playing. Um, but I would guess that the reason they did that is because the viewership for the limited only pro tours uh, were much lower. And also it did a much worse job of promoting the new set and selling cards. Um, so I, I, I'd be, I'm, I think they probably wouldn't want to do an all limited one. So it's more like a question of, do you want to get rid of limited as a premier format? And I would be sad if that happened. I mean, I understand it's worse for viewers. Um, I do like limited. I think it's, I think draft is an interesting format. And I don't think like I've already scaled back the amount of the amount I play limited because there's usually a pro tour pretty soon after the set. And then there's no other reason for me to draft the format. Um, you know, and uh, considering the fact that I like to play formats that are relevant for upcoming tournaments, if there's no limited GP, which is frequently the case, then I just, I, I haven't drafted the core, core set 19, whatever it's called. I haven't, I've drafted that maybe five times total. Yeah. I love limited too. And I would certainly miss it if it were gone. Uh, but I, I think it would make the, the Pro Tour preparation process more interesting. And if that also increases viewers, it might just be a better decision overall. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on the preparation standpoint. I like preparing for one format. Um, although I think some people like the fact that you can't fully prepare for anything. So, like, how, you know, how you spend your time is interesting. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, it's it's just sort of too bad because like high level limited is just some of the most fun magic that I could imagine myself playing, like the like national drafts or like day two drafts at Grand Prix. But it just sucks that it's just not that enjoyable to watch. So it's well, it it might hurt like the pro tour player experience. That's just got to be. They have to shift the focus to get more viewers, right? Because that's what's going to drive the game to be able to pay the pros or to be able to do all these things that people want from Watsi. Well, I think the question is also, though, if you don't support draft at a high level in competitive play, are you going to have the same local infrastructure? Are you still going to have local stores offering drafts on Friday night or is it just going to be standard modern? And if you kill limited at the local level, you're really going to impact the amount of booster packs that get bought and opened um and maybe singles go up in price but that's not even what i'm talking about if you're not fostering an environment where people are buying packs on a regular basis like that could have a, you know a, a rippling effect yeah that's that's certainly why it's like maybe potentially a safe move to keep limited because like 
it could be catastrophic, right? Like really bad things could happen if like limited, they just accidentally kill limited entirely by, by taking it away from premier events. So people don't get like their eyeballs on limited as much, but it'd be interesting. I, I hope that they, they do the research and they have the numbers to, to make sure that they can keep it alive, regardless of what they do with it on the pro tour or have some sort of other limited championship. That's like a separate thing from the pro tour entirely. I think it's also an important way for people to get into the game um, when they sort of they go to their pre-release and then they are they can basically they can draft the format even if they're losing it's pretty accessible to a new player just you pay your fifteen dollars or whatever it costs to draft at a store whereas like buying a standard deck that's competitive is a huge expense right off the bat that not everyone's capable of making so I think it's important to keep to keep promoting limited um, but we'll see. Uh, John, do you watch much of, of coverage in general when, when you're not playing? Uh, I don't. Um, yeah, I watch very little. Um, part, part of that is because I didn't have a setup where I, I could do something um, productive on my computer and have a second screen. Um, I now have that, so maybe I'll watch more. Uh, I don't find that it's enjoyable to, do, to just sit there watching coverage and doing nothing else. It's just, it's just too slow and not interesting enough. Um, but having it on in the background is something maybe I'll, maybe I'll start watching more. I think it's a useful tool to get better at magic that, you know, I'm currently not taking advantage of. Oh, I'm just asking you, and, and Alex can also chime in, is people are saying, they're suggesting that it's possible because that, that people aren't watching Limited because it's not being covered properly. And I, I wonder if you had an opinion, if that's even true, or people are just saying that, like, if you swap in, the best commentators that you thought the best two in the game, it would still lead to lower uh, viewership just because of the, of the format itself. Uh, people are, uh, Andy and I made, talked about how you know, some, they could test building the narrative. Some people are like, okay, you can't because limited people don't know these players, whereas constructed people can follow their pet decks. If it's affinity and you're affinity master, oh, I'm going to follow Alex Magilton when he's on, on, on the stream. Uh, but limited people don't have anything to gravitate towards. And one theory is like, maybe we build up these storylines. And one time they, they built up the draft master. This guy was like an absolute killer in terms of win percentage, but they didn't even feature him at the PT. So do you think it's an issue or do you think it doesn't really matter? Um, well, it's, so it's a little hard for me to answer that because I, I would have to approach it from why I would watch coverage and, I think I would maybe watch it for different reasons than other people. So one thing is if you're watching a standard matchup and you're watching, you know, two good players, there's an expectation that they know the matchup reasonably well. And just from watching it, you're not only invested in the story of like, who's going to win, but you can, it's like um, sort of a substitute for testing the matchup yourself. You're seeing how the matchup plays out. Uh, you're seeing what sideboard strategies people are implementing whether that, you know, how that works out, what turns are important. Um, whereas in limited, like if you ever watch someone draft, uh, like just, just drafting a YouTube video or something, and they make like a color pick that you don't agree with, like you're now no longer able to sort of follow what would I do in this situation because they're just diverging so much from how you would have drafted um, that. And it's not so much, it's if, if you stick with your philosophy, you're not really you're not really learning anything that you're going to incorporate. So you're basically just seeing what happens. And I think 
really high quality coverage that can explain things to you would help, but you don't need that for constructed. For constructed, you can watch it even on mute if you can see the cards in hand and still get value. Um, so, so I, I guess that there's a lot, a much higher burden on the coverage team to make up for for that fact. And I don't know if it's, I don't know that it's just that coverage isn't up to the task. I think it's just a less watchable way of playing Magic. Alex, do you ever watch coverage? I do watch coverage. Whenever I'm not at the event, um, I usually remember that there's coverage and turn it on. Do you like Constructive Limited? Does it matter to you what it is? You're interested in both types? Um, I do really like watching the draft portion, um, mostly because they feature a drafter that I look up to often, and I like watching that player make decisions and how they would be different from my decisions. Um, The games themselves are not as interesting to me. They're just not. They're not as like repeatable. Like the like a standard matchup will play out in a similar way, so that you can you'll be faced with similar decisions. Whereas limited, you don't really know what's in the player's mind. Like what cards are they playing around? What do they see in the draft? What you know? What cards are they drawn to in their deck? Whereas in constructive, you're watching someone play you know red black versus you know Esper control. You kind of know the hinge points of the matchup and are they playing around settle the wreckage? Is it Vraska's contempt? Uh, are they trying to? establish a board presence before Teferi. There's all these like um, relatable situations, whereas limited is much more. And that's why limited is fun because the gameplay is more unique. Yeah. And that's a good point as to why the draft portion is more watchable, at least for me than the games, um, because draft decisions are very repeatable. And so I can see, Oh wow. If you know, Reed Duke or whoever takes this card over that card early in the draft, uh, maybe that's something I should start doing. Do you find that when their pick diverges from what you would do in a significant way that you just lose interest? Like if you were like, oh, I would take another red card here and to, because it's, I want to cut the color and then they take a blue card instead, do you just write it off to, oh, maybe they have a different color preference? Or like, I, for me, I just lose a lot of interest at that specific moment. Um, but that might not be true for everyone. Uh, I used to. Um... And maybe this is a tangent I don't need to be going on, but at, at some point uh, I decided to stop assuming that uh, the decision that I would make in any given spot is better than the person that I'm watching. Uh, so, and, and when that was the case, I would lose a lot of interest. As soon as somebody did something that I wouldn't do, I would be like, oh man, what is this guy doing? It's He's a clown. This is over. Uh, but when I started to just try and learn something from every game that I watched, uh, then I would find it a lot more interesting to see the divergent paths. I guess in that spot, like the uh, having good coverage can help in those situations because I'm the same. I, I'm the same way. If I, I've come up with like a strategy for draft and I feel that in the dark, I'm going to prefer the strategy I came up with than the opposite strategy that I dismissed. But I would like to hear, you know, reasons like if i could you know listen to seth manfield or redo guys they're drafting what their thought process is why they're making that decision that would be really interesting um but to just see them do it and not know how confident they are in that decision you know if they've given it a lot of thought if they it's really hard to just take their word over my word when i've thought about it a lot um but it is something that i probably need to be more open to i just think about all the uh 
different draft videos I've watched or, or seen where someone comments, stop watching after you know, five seconds. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> um, let's, let's, let's go straight to, to the next one. Um, achieving a level in the pro club, we'll now grant you that level for two cycles rather than one. Uh, John, I, I haven't been keeping in touch with the, with the pro players club, so I, I thought it was seasonal. So I guess at some point they announced that they were just going to make it for one cycle, uh, three months. I assume the player, there was an uproar among the players, and, and that's why, as a response, they've tried, they've decided to extend it to two cycles now. Uh, I, well, okay, so I think season and cycle are the same thing, so I don't really know what you mean. Um, Basically, there are four quarters in the year, and I don't know if it's exactly three months or I don't know how they set the dates, but it's it's a quarterly rotation. Um, so what what would happen according to the announcement is at the end of a quarter, your level is determined, and you so if I'm gold at the end of quarter one, then I'm gold throughout quarter two, and at the end of quarter two, it's reassessed, and I'd be that level for quarter three. Um, so now at the end of quarter one, if I hit gold. I'm guaranteed to be gold for quarter two and quarter three. Um, and this, this, was, uh, this decision, I think, was in response to feedback um, on two particular issues. One is that um, unintentionally, I think, they, you know, I think it was unintentional, they cut benefits um, when they made this change. So before, if you hit, let's say you hit platinum mid-season, uh, mid-quarter, right? You would be platinum immediately for the rest of the year, uh, which means that for the, the pro tour coming up in, a, in two weeks, you would receive your platinum appearance fee. Now, because they're awarding the status at the end of the quarter, if you hit platinum mid-quarter, you would still be gold for that rest of that quarter, including the pro tour, and then your platinum would kick in. So just that change with no other considerations, uh, you lose your platinum appearance fee. So, so this is a change. This was... I think this sort of remedies that situation by saying, okay, you lose it for this one, but you get it for an extra one. So they're kind of restoring that unintentional cut. Um, so, I mean, I think that's probably perceived as a good thing by most people. Uh, the other complaint, I think, was um, that because the, your, your results you know, fluctuate over the course of a year, it's now more like the rotating quarters make it more difficult to maintain your level. Um, and plan your life and do all these things. And um, I think adding an extra cycle to the benefits is sort of a way of making it easier to maintain your level or sort of plan your next few months um, and account for the, you know, the variance in the game and the fluctuations. Um, I'm less in favor of this change, even though it sounds good. Um, so the, the, main, the main thing that I, I, I think needs to be considered is that uh, the way that you currently determine levels is not so much based on who the best players are, but based on who spiked a tournament, uh, which leads to a lot of people being temporarily overrated. Um, so you might spike a tournament and, and you get to be gold or platinum, and that's great for you. Uh, and it's difficult to maintain that level because you're kind of overrated for a bit. So making it easier to keep that level for longer, it's going to have an unintended consequence. Um, they're not just going to give benefits to more Platinums or Golds. They have a budget. They're trying to have a certain number of Platinums. Um, and if they find that too many people are able to keep their level for longer, they're going to have to increase the thresholds and make it more difficult to achieve in the first place. Uh, so 
I think this is kind of a patchwork solution to that problem. And a better solution would be making it um, the pro levels correlate more to who the best players are so that there's naturally less fluctuation rather than if you spike, making it easier to keep it for longer. I think that's less of a priority. Um, but this is basically in response to pros complaining that it's really difficult to plan their lives with the, the rotations. So, so what level are you at? What's your current status, John? Um, well, I'm gold for... So we're, we just had the last Pro Tour, which was the 25th anniversary, but it, didn't, it wasn't the end of a cycle. So we're currently still in the middle of, I guess, the fourth quarter of last season. So the new changes have not been implemented yet. At the end of Q4, um, I'm going to be at least gold, almost certainly gold. So I will be gold for quarter one of next year and quarter two now because of the extra benefits. And I don't lose a lot of points in quarter one, so there's a good chance I'll still be gold for quarter three. But after that, I have to have some results to keep it. Oh. It took me a while to figure that out. It was not easy. I'm still confused. Andy, I'm still confused. <laughs> what about you? Uh, I'm just glad John knows because I, I have almost no clue. How, like, I'm sure you could map it out. Like, but it, the, the fact that you have to like sit there and take like a lot of time to figure out what, what, like where you're going to be is pretty obnoxious. I feel like Watsi should just have like a page. They should just have a page where it tells you what you are. And then you could click well, this quarter and it'll tell you what you are that quarter. Just have someone upload the Excel sheet. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> and, and Alex, you said you were, uh, I forget, silver now, so that's why you're not grinding as hard? Is that? Uh, yeah, I made silver um, this past season. Uh, under the new change, I will be silver for the first and second cycle. Uh, and that doesn't really do a whole lot for me. So I haven't really uh, decided if I want to start grinding and keep it or not. I, th I think when they announced like, the rotational change, the desired player behavior is... They, I think there's going to have to be a change in how people approach grinding in that you should probably just play the tournaments you are going to play, and you are whatever level you are, and that's it. And it's, it's kind of put, I think it pushes people away from the idea of caring a lot about grinding for a level because it's just, it's hard to counter anything. Um, the grinding is much more difficult. Um, yeah. But if you don't worry about the grinding, you just play the tournaments you're going to play and try to do as well as you can. And if you're a good player, you'll sort of fall into the right level. I think that's the idea that they're trying to push but it's really difficult as a competitive player to adopt that mindset. So I think like Alex's reaction, and it's also my reaction as well to some extent, is kind of demotivating. It's, you don't, like, you can't really guarantee anything. So you just have to always be going to tournaments and always be doing well. And, you know, that's a, that's a lot to ask. Okay, John. I, I'm still... I gotta ask you again, just, just for my own sanity. Like, so you're gold, and you're gonna be gold for for the next two cycles or the next six months, let's say. And what? Uh, how do you know if you're gonna maintain gold for like the rest of next year? Like, what? <laughs> when? Like, does it start? 
Like I'm confused when it starts and when it ends. Like how your points are tabulated. Okay. Um, I'll try to explain it to someone who has not been reading the past year of announcements. Um, <laughs> on, on September 16th is the end of end of the current season. So even though the 25th anniversary is finished, we're still in last season. So September 16th is the turnover date. On that day, you determine what your level is. So on that day, right now I have, uh, I think, 35 points. 36, maybe. Um, Whatever it is, it's enough for gold. Um, So on that day, they calculate my level's gold. What that means is that for the next three months, approximately, I'm a gold player. I get all the benefits for gold, which includes three buys for GPs, uh, Pro Tour, Invite, and Flight. Um, Basically, that's it, I think. Um, maybe some for the next small six months, no? No. Well, now it's for the next six months, but okay. the next quarter is three months. So okay. I get the benefit for six, but the benefit triggers on September 16th. Okay. Um, and then three months after that, um, I don't know the exact date, the first quarter of the next season ends. So end of Q1. At the end of Q1, you make the same calculation based on the last 12 months of magic. Okay, so basically it drops Q1 from the previous year and adds Q1 for this year. So it's like rotating. Okay. Yeah, it's a rotating that, but it's not, it's like a the rotation is made on the three-month date, not on a continual day-to-day basis. Okay, gotcha. So at the end of quarter one, they determine my level. If it's still gold, I will be gold for Q2 and Q3. Okay, I got you. So you're saying that... So, so right now, I'm going to be gold for Q1 and Q2 based on my current points. Um, I think I need to get eight more points um, in the next three months, including the Pro Tour, and then I will be gold at the end of Q1. So I will be, then I would be gold for the next three quarters instead of two. It like pushes the expiry date. So, so what's the stress for you? The fact that because, let's say, you had a great first quarter... Um, from from last season that that maybe you have to like either maintain it or do better than you did last time to maintain that level? So the stress is added in two ways. In one way, every pro tour, you're trying to make up enough points to counteract the ones you're losing. So whereas before, if you had a good PT at some point in the year, you locked your level for the rest of that year and for the next year. So there was less like life-changing stress over each tournament. Now you have that stress at every tournament. So at every PT, you might have to go, you know, 10, six, to keep your level, or, or maybe you need 11, five or whatever it is. Um, so you have that, you have the other aspect, which is um, they introduced the GP cap so that people wouldn't feel like they have to go to every possible tournament they could attend because they don't know when the points would matter. So they were able to make it so that if you have six good results, you could sort of like not go to as many GPs if you didn't want to, or, you know, balance some other things. Um, and then if you were in a spot where you needed one point, then you maybe make that extra trip. But now you don't know when the points are going to matter because your every result will make it different, will mean something different for each quarter. So you basically feel like you always have to go to every single tournament just in case. And that's a mindset, I think, that leads to a lot of burnout. And more, so, more than just burnout, if you're living in a region uh, where you don't have access to a lot of Grand Prix's, you're like, do I book this really expensive trip to go to four GPs in the US? Like, maybe I would do that if I needed to hit three points for gold, but I don't know if I need three points for gold for Q3. You know, it's hard to predict. 
And if you're living in, you know, Hong Kong or somewhere like that, you have to make this decision with all these unknowns. Like it's, it's putting people, a lot of pressure under people, a lot of pressure. So I think that's a negative um, for a lot of people in those regions. Um, whereas the okay. old system basically only had the stress once. You had, at the end of the year, you have this one big tournament that's going to determine your level. And it was a hugely stressful tournament for everybody. Well, everybody who didn't have their level locked. Uh, but the rest of the year, you could sort of relax a bit, play the tournaments you want to play, make some decisions to go extra chips if you needed to, and then just sort of balance it with other aspects of your life. Okay, thanks, thanks, thanks a lot, John. I, that's clarifying me. So let's say you had to to plan some trips for like Q three, but you wouldn't know because you're like in Q one, you're not sure how many points you're going to get in Q two, right, and stuff like that. Okay, I, I'm getting. Uh, a full picture of, of why it's, it's pretty stressful. Um, it's basically treating every three months as the last three months of the year. So that stress that you normally had at the end of every year where you're like trying to, you know, make enough points, you now have that all the time and you don't know when you're going to be in a tough spot. So you have to sort of treat every tournament as very important and go to as many as possible. Okay. Um, so so I, I sent you the RELAX tweet. Where he's like, all the pro changes are good. Remaining issues, silver, brick, your silver invite, being told to come back once your points don't matter again. Is it beating? And cycles are still a huge FOMO draining grind. Well, what I was talking about is the cycles and the grind, but you might want to ask Alex about the impact on silver because he's, he's silver, so he has a better idea. Um, I think it's impacting him a lot, for example. Uh, it is. Um, silver used to be worth uh two invites per year per season uh if you could reliably maintain it and now it's only worth one uh maybe one because the timing rules about using your silver invite are um they're not flexible at all so uh it could be the case where you earn silver for a cycle but you also win the rptq for that cycle um, so you get to play and you don't need your silver invite, but then, uh, during the next cycle, if you lost a bunch of points from a really good cycle that you had a year ago, uh, you don't even have your silver invite anymore. So there's possibilities of, uh, where under the old system, you might've had up to three invites and now you only have one. There was, there was one year in the last, like there's, I've been gold mostly for the past five years, but there was one year where I was silver and I still played every pro tour. And it's, it's basically, you have your silver uh, that you can use for any invite over the next year. And then if you hit silver again that year, that gives you another invite. So basically you can sort of use those, that, that one, the time you achieve silver one time will likely get you two invites at least, right? That's, that's how it used to work. Yeah, and that's how it did work for, for many seasons, and that's how I played in almost every Pro Tour for the past three years, despite never being higher than Silver. Yeah, I, it's, I mean, I remember when they made that change, and I thought it was like, finally, they're, they're making Silver a real path to the Pro Tour. Like, before that, it was so difficult to take, like, one good result, and you get a PT invite, and to transition that into being a Pro Tour regular was incredibly difficult you had to basically spike your one invite and follow it up with another spike that was basically how you get to gold 
Um, whereas this double invite allowed you to sort of play not every pro tour, but you could, you know, you could play a few PTs off of a silver invite if you do reasonably well. Um, and when they made the change to the rotation, they just nerfed that. They just said, yeah, we're going to make silver worse. And they made it a lot worse. Kind of like, do you feel it's because of the rotation? I feel like it was separate from the rotation. I feel like if they had the rotation, they said silver's worth two invites a year, then it would be the same more or less. But the well, fact that they made it more rotation. Well, with the cycling system, the cycle, the system of cycles. I, I've thought about this a little bit, and I I can't really think of a good solution to preserve the the double invite uh, capability of silver under the new rotation system. Uh, I mean, you could change it to something like once every three cycles instead of once every four, but that still doesn't have it do the same thing that it did before exactly. Uh, and uh, the conclusion that I ended up coming to was that I think under the cycle system, uh, a level like silver as it used to be just isn't really a good level to have. And that I think that there should be a level in between silver and gold where you get to go to the Pro Tours, but you don't have paid airfare to them. Uh, and maybe you can only use that benefit twice per 12-month period or something. Um, or maybe three times. I don't know. Uh, I actually think that having... I mean, I know that's how it's implemented now. Like, silvers don't get flights, but I actually think that's more... That's a, I think that's a, actually a bad policy. I think asking someone to... And you've, I know you've skipped, like, you skipped the PT, I think it was in Japan, right? Because it, was, it wasn't beneficial to you and it was too expensive? Yeah, it was too expensive to go, and I was too far away from the next level up, so it just didn't make sense, so I just skipped. And I skipped using a silver invite that I had saved from earlier in the season that just ended up expiring. Like, I think not. I think that an invite, if they're going to pay for flights, which I think is an open question if they should, um, then I kind of don't like having invites without flights because silver can be a lot more valuable depending on where you live. And that's kind of just a weird situation. Um, like, I think silver from some regions is, is just a really bad thing to have. Like, to have to spend a ton of money on a flight for a PT and not do well is pretty backbreaking for some people, right? Um, I don't know. So I, I guess I'd rather a different solution than giving silvers. Why, why do you think that it's bad to give them like uh, two invites over 12 months or like max one invite over every six? Is that is just a bad solution? Uh, I don't think it's bad. It's, I think it's just tough to implement in a way that uh, lines up with their goals. I mean, it, it's one thing that's clear to me is that they're trying to control the size of the Pro Tour. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but when you create a, a hypothetical level that lets a silver caliber player attend, you know as many pro tours in a season as they can, as they can attend, um, you're inflating the size of the pro tour. Uh, yeah. and for whatever reasons they have, they think that's bad. Yeah. I mean, I think they made a, a significant cut. Uh, it was kind of lost in the shuffle when they announced this change to the structure, because it's such a massive change to how everything works that it was kind of lost. The fact that they made silver much, much worse than it was. Um, and it's kind of a weird thing, I think, to see happen because silver didn't cost them anything, really. It, 
other than the size of the Pro Tours. Like they weren't giving out any silver benefits, right? There's no, there's no finance. You don't get any financial benefit from being silver. Is that correct? That is correct. So yeah, it's, but maybe having smaller Pro Tours is important. I, I think for cost, it's a factor. Uh, I guess so certainly as a player, I prefer to play a small tournament. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. Um, that said, one thing that I've noticed about uh, Magic players or competitive Magic players in general is that they just want to play on the Pro Tour. Uh, and it's not really uh, a money-making thing or you know a, a, a lifestyle thing, career thing. They just want to play at the highest level possible. And I think that that's one avenue that uh, is a little bit underexplored. Like they, they spend so much time controlling the size of the pro tour, uh, and giving out invites, uh, under the traditional channels that they haven't really tried any ideas for changing it up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard because like my selfish point of view is just that I think I want the pro tour to be as exclusive as possible. Um, but you know, they did make silver. Like in your spot, I can definitely see how this is going to make me not want to play competitive magic. Like just the fact that you're, unless you spike a pro tour, you're basically just floundering. Yeah. I'm, I'm back to just, uh, you know, playing whatever tournaments strike my fancy. Uh, and you know, if I happen to qualify for a pro tour, I'll attend, but, uh, grand prix themselves aren't really, money-making ventures for me you know i struggle to break even they're just enjoyable trips for me so uh when you remove the possibility of uh, also getting to play multiple pro tours from a string of mediocre grand prix finishes then the incentive to keep playing in them kind of just disappears uh, and there's there's a lot of different things they could do and some of them are kind of radical but i mean i don't really have access to the kind of information that they have access to. So I can't say what decisions are good to make and what aren't. I think the writing, well, my perspective on the idea of grinding GPs at this point is that for almost everybody in the world, flying to tournaments in order to try to earn pro points is a really bad financial decision. Um, it can be mediated if you have a sponsorship or something, but and it's now becoming more obvious to everyone how bad it is. And you should basically only fly to GPs if like you want to go for fun. And that's kind of always been the case, but it's like more pronounced right now than it's ever been. That the whole idea of grinding to try to achieve something is um, really not a good idea from a from an you know from an EV standpoint. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. That's unfortunate for people who, you know, like the, the challenge of trying to achieve something, but, you know, you have to deal with the system presented. John, John, do you think it's important for the game? I see this tweeted sometimes that uh, some people think the, the dream of becoming a professional uh, magic player should be, should be possible. Um, like, do you have an opinion on that? Like, should it be? Like, does it matter that the game's growth, that it's attracting um, a set of players to, to want to be, to jump, dive in really deep into magic? How, I wonder how much YC actually cares about that. 
They say that they do care about it. Um, is every time I've talked to people about it, you know, they care about the players, and and I think that they they ultimately do, even if they don't know how to create a system that helps them. Um, it's it's hard to know. Like if you just take it from a viewership standpoint, um, I think people care a lot about seeing the best players in the game. Like if you know if they tune into a pro tour, they want to see PV in a future match. They want to see you know, John Finkel, uh, do they want to see a uh, gold pro? Probably. I mean, probably if they have some connection to them, like whether it's, you know, geographical, like I think I have, I have fans in Canada that I might not have, you know, in Europe or whatever. Um, but does it really matter if it's me in a future match versus someone, you know, who did well in an SCG circuit or like, as long as it's a recognizable name, does it really matter who the better player is? It's, it's hard to know. Um, so from a viewer, viewership standpoint, they say it's important. I don't know if it's important. Uh, I don't know if it's lip service. I, I really don't know. Uh, I will say, though, that for people who are grinding to try to get to the Pro Tour or who have played a few PTs and are trying to, to you know, top eight or become gold, or I think a lot of them have this idea that you know, if I'm gold, I'm going to take a year off and see how far I can go. And they are not supporting this player at all. It's a really bad decision for people to do that. I've made that decision. So it's, you know, it's kind of, people are going to do it. I mean, I don't know. I guess you have to chase whatever goals you have in life. And even if they aren't, you know, rewarding financially. Um, but I think if they want to promote the entire structure of trying to qualify for the Pro Tour, over and over again, then they probably should consider, you know, that this is a sustainable activity for people. And right now it's not. Glad to have your insight on that. Um, announce the schedule for the GP, the PTs in early September. I think a lot of uh, non-pros who were checking out the stream and, and on Reddit were, were excited for the GP schedule for 2019, but that's going to come later. And last, um, you know, they mentioned Team Series rules, and, and we're not going to go through that on the show. Uh, they're going to hire, the last thing they mentioned was they're going to hire three pro players as, as advisors to help us work on more details for next season and beyond. And uh, they're currently in the process of reviewing pro player candidates to work with Wizards of the Coast as consultants and help us shape the future of pro tour and magic pro gaming. So, I don't know what to think about that uh, as of now, but I, I guess that's better news than nothing, John. Um, so I think this is the kind of announcement that is going to be widely praised. Um, I have a kind of different take on it. Um, so it's written into, I, I believe, like I have not checked the rules since this announcement and it's, you know, it's new information for me that I'm processing. Um, but my understanding is that there are rules against Watsi employees competing on the Pro Tour. And you're now talking about hiring people that are competing for very exclusive benefits that will have a hand in um, structuring organized play. And I think that's a conflict of interest. And according to the current Premier Play rules, I don't think they should be allowed to play in Pro Tours if they're working for Watsi. So I think that's an issue. Um, I also, like, as, as we've sort of processed this, this change in structure and a lot of pros have voiced their opinions, it's kind of become more clear to me that 
people that like, I, I think when they announce something like, uh, you know, the silver showcase or pay the pros or something like that, the, the community, the pro community is pretty solidified against it. Um, or they can have a kind of a unified voice, but when it's more like a lateral change, um, like whether they give out how many points they give out of GPs or whatever, or worlds that people approach it from a very personal bias. And I think there's a danger of like picking three people to represent the players, uh, of not really getting a fair take on it. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I, I think it's going to be very hard especially if people have to sign NDAs to sort of represent the interests of the entire pro community when they're basically only one person and they're experiencing the pro tour in a certain way. Um, I also think it's not great that the people that they're asking to represent the players in this discussion are chosen by Watsi. And I think it's really hard to stand up for player interests if you're, you know, on the payroll. So there's a lot of issues with this announcement. I think consulting with pros before making drastic changes is good, uh, but I'm I'm skeptical of this being a positive overall. That, that's just my take. I mean, I have I, I approach things a little differently, kind of the way you know, like the kind of the Hippocratic oath uh, for doctors. Like if if you make a change, above all, make sure you don't make something worse. And I think this creates a lot of conflict of interest and i'm i'm skeptical of it andy do you have a do you have a take well i originally had thought that this sounds like all upside but john has made some pretty valid points about like what happens if they just pick like two north american players and like martin Yuza, like a like a psycho who will go to anything and they just have those people like dictate how things so how some decisions are made when it's really not going to benefit the majority of people so that's pretty dangerous if that, if like something like that would occur and i also think like listening to you know the platinum's talking they're like in no way really considering the life of like a gold or silver pro um and you know i i have my own biases so obviously like everyone has this but um it's going to be really difficult for three people who are not sort of chosen by the community to represent the interests of everyone, even though they're very smart people probably that are being considered for, for this position or these positions. Um, but yeah, but when you, but like, say you're talking about like a change to the team series, right. Where maybe you're going to have more players on team or less. I think like three people are going to approach that from like, well, what's good for my team. And that's kind of like a dangerous situation when only three people have a say. That's a very good point. Very good illustration of how it could uh, go very badly. Because, like, you could be like, oh, well, I don't, like, a, a team of five, that's fine. Like, we only have five guys who really want to do this full time now. Yeah. Or you could be that big team of, like, 12 people. Like, what are we going to do to these two guys who don't get on one of our two teams? <laughs> Someone in chat, easy answer, no platinums. <laughs> Well, I mean, you could take an approach where there are no no club benefits, and that it's all in prize money, and then you could you could announce much larger prize pools. Um, that is an approach that could be taken, um, but I think pros are would would argue that they want some more consistency in their lives, and it's that may sound fine to a viewer, but like 
you know, if you're trying to plan your life and every, every pro tour for me, anyway, I take a month. Like I, that's my focus for a month. I mean, uh, people who have to juggle a lot more responsibilities than I do, whether it's work, family, school, probably have to sort of make some sacrifices. Um, but it's, you know, if you can't count on a steady income and you're taking a month every pro tour, that's, you know, it's pretty, pretty significant. Does a, does a game like Hearthstone fly all of its players to their, their tournaments like, that are like, uh, like the Pro Tour? Do they pay them appearance fees, or do they just have the enormous prize pools? I don't really know how Hearthstone works. Do you know, Alex? I have no idea. I know they have Grand Prix-esque events. Uh, I know that just from watching Eduardo play in one, but that's the extent of my knowledge. Yeah, I'm not, I don't really follow the Hearthstone community. I know that they have like some global games thing. I don't know if that's their primary organized play system where they have like weekly matches, but I don't really know how it works. Hmm. Oh man. You always like, yeah, yeah, they, they should just can it and increase the price pool. But yeah, the steady income thing. Well, that, that's like one of the reasons I would argue against flights for the pro tour. And I, there's backlash when you suggest this because there's people who live in areas where flying to the pro tour is a huge expense if it's not covered. Um, but when flights are booked, I, I've had friends like request these outrageous flights that are triple the price that you could find online. And sometimes they're accepted. Um, I always book my own flights cause I usually get more in equivalency than I would if I just booked, you know, the cheapest flight that they found for me. Um, but I don't know, like it's a huge, it's a hidden benefit. It's like the, the viewers don't really see that money. And I think if, you know, if, if they weren't booking flights for people, they could offer a lot more. Uh, basically you want, you want as much money to go into the player's hands so that they can decide how to spend it rather than have them manage how to pay out the benefits. I think. Uh, John, do you, do you have any idea how many platinum pros there are right now, roughly? Um, right now. I mean, I think their target has generally been to have about 30 platinums and I don't know how many made it this year. I haven't followed. It's pretty. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a spreadsheet on Twitter. That's some, that, uh, um, someone created just a, just a player basically, um, that most of the pros use, uh, his Twitter is at S E N E one. So that will tell you, um, Oh, it seems like a, low number to me of people that I want to be able to like you have to be one of those 30 to be to get a reason like more than a reasonable amount of appearance fees and, and invitations and invites I don't know I'd like to know how many like there are of each level I'm curious I think like I looked it up last year um and it was a, a, I mean, the numbers fluctuate, obviously. And I think it's about 30 platinums and about 90 golds. Uh, I have no idea how many silvers. Um, I don't know if that's their target or that's just what it's been. Uh, but yeah. Hmm. A lot, lot of food for thought. Um, John Stern for Prez. Uh, what I meant was... No platinum pros on an advisory council. I think pros who are still in the grinding phase should be on it. But that's also not super balanced either, right, John? If it was all super grinders? 
Yeah, I mean, like, so the people, the platinums, people who are consistently platinum are generally people who are making their living off of magic, and to have like grinders determine how their, you know, benefits package should work is also not really fair. And and we're also like uh, attributing a little too much to this. Like, these are advisors; they're not going to be setting policy, so they're going to present their opinion. But hopefully, Wizards still has people who can consider you know, other ramifications um, for everyone else. But it's, it's, it's very easy for people to complain about a system, and I've done it too, and say, it's not good for me, therefore it's bad. Um, but it's really hard to come up with a system that is good for everyone. And a lot of it is give and take. What's good for someone in Asia will be the opposite of what's good for a North American pro. Um, so how do you balance that and make sure that, you know, the system works for everyone? I think it's a very difficult job. Um, but I think that getting three people to sort of represent the player's interest and have those players handpicked by wizards is not really the best approach. That makes sense. All right. This has been a, a, a mega episode so far. We're going to wrap up with, of course, Hall of Fame, uh, ballot voting, Obviously, need to get uh, both you and Alex's thoughts, especially with Twitter today. A lot of uh, different <laughs> cheating allegations and uh, sketchy players that, that people are not going to vote for. Uh, They're eligible, and uh, Alex had a had a strong opinion uh, when he tweeted. Um, Seeing, I'll just read it. Seeing anyone seriously try to cast doubt on Seth Matthews' integrity is just making me want to be over the entire concept of the MTG HOF, and this might be the last ballot I ever submit. I'm, I'm going to let you elaborate, Alex. Um, so it all came from, uh, well, first of all, I, I have to be upfront with my bias. Um, I think that Seth Manfield is like a pretty obvious slam dunk candidate for the Hall of Fame this year. Um, his resume is just incredible, and he passes a lot of tests that people seem to have about, uh, you know, is he the best player? Um, you could make a case for that. So I think he should be in. And then uh, for me to load up Twitter and see that there are some people that are legitimately trying to make the case that Seth should not be in the Hall of Fame for... Um, reasons that question his integrity uh and the reasons amount to something like oh i you know i tried played against him in a tournament once and i believe he tried to slow play me out of the match and the match was for top eight or whatever um uh that to me it, it's really upsetting only because i you know have known seth for over a decade and uh he's a really good friend of mine i know that he's uh, a, a very clean player, a very passionate player. He cares a lot about the game, and he's he's incredible. He's definitely one of the best Magic players. Uh, and I think that accusations like these are kind of ridiculous. So whenever I see one made, it's really hard for me not to think that this is something that's based on, oh, I just don't like Seth for some reason. So I'm going to try to find a reason uh, why I'm not going to vote for him based on some unpleasant experience that I had with him. That's the way that I read accusations like that. And when I think about that uh, applied to the whole concept of the Hall of Fame, that's kind of how everybody votes, you know, and you know, maybe this is a little bit more candid than I need to be. But you know, when you have uh, 
the top three players on the list in terms of ha- Pro Tour top eights, and it's Marcio Carvalho, uh, Li Shitian, and Tomoharu Saito. Uh, they all have had allegations against them of being, you know, shady or unclean players, cheaters, if you will. Uh, and then you have people in their communities vigorously defending them. Um, you know, all of the mint card guys are going to come and defend Lee Sheetan against the accusations that are flying around. All of the ultra pro guys are going to say, no, I think Lee Sheetan is definitely a cheater because X, Y, and Z. And I don't really know the truth. Um, so I have to imagine that a lot of accusations that get flung around like that are based only on bias, personal bias. and. That conclusion makes sense to me uh, because I think back to every ballot that I've ever submitted for the Hall of Fame, and they've all been horribly biased. And I'm, you know, very ready to admit that the entire system is biased because, you know, when you have a system of uh, for Hall of Fame voting that relies on your peers and your competitors voting you in, you're obviously not going to get along with all of your peers and competitors, and those people aren't going to want to vote you in. as a corollary to that, if your resume is not quite up to Hall of Fame standards, whatever they may be, but you happen to be really good friends with all of your uh, all of the voters, you're going to get voted in. And I don't really like that either. So when I made that tweet, I was kind of really just frustrated with the whole process because um, I I don't see a way for... Uh, anybody to get around the bias of the system like the, there there are enough voters such that uh, social clout and and clicks and stuff really influence the voting, but not enough players such that a really bad reputation uh, will definitely keep you out or um, that a really good reputation won't get you in undeservedly so are you um, do you already know who you're voting for Alex? Uh, I'm 100% voting for Seth and Suyoshi Ikeda um, for uh, Seth because I think he's just the best candidate this year and Ikeda for reasons that I uh, wrote about on my blog a couple years ago. Um, My other vote slots are kind of up in the air. Uh, I'm... So you, can, I, can I ask you before you continue, are sure. you considering voting for Li Tan? Yes, I'm considering it. Because he's never been suspended. Most of the, like, he has a couple incidents where, like, he played an extra line on camera, that kind of thing. And he has some accusations of stalling that are similar to the accusation that I think Seth is facing right now. Right? Yeah. So, but, and you're 100% voting for Seth. And Li Chi Chan's stats are kind of through the roof as well. And I think, I think Seth is the better player. I think Seth is incredible as well. Um, but, I mean, I also really value... Um, like, I think the Pro Tour... Like, a Hall of Fame, to me, is not just about who's the best player. I think, like, it's fame. It's Hall of Fame. It's who's... Like, we decided that the metric that matters is top eight. Everyone knows. Everyone feels this way. A top eight matters, ninth place, it sucks for you, but it doesn't matter. It's just not, like, I, I, don't, I don't even look at the top 16s. I, to me, what matters to me is I got the results, 
And then there's other things I consider, like how good the player is and whether they're a clean player. But if you're talking about like uh, somebody who's had no confirmed shadiness, he has not been suspended, then Li Shi Tan looks like a slam dunk based on his stats, right? Yeah, then that's how I feel. And, you know, when I tweeted out some quick thoughts about the Hall of Fame this year, I included Li Shi Tian as someone that I'm likely voting for. Uh, but I have to admit that I haven't really done a lot of research um, beyond the surface. I just I know that he's never been suspended. And, you know, as much as I want to be like, oh, that's good enough for me, I'm going to vote him in. I feel like I should, you know, if, if, if I'm going to take my ballot seriously, I should do a little bit more research. And I, I haven't done that yet. Well, what about if somebody, so like, I'm sort of like playing devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, if you played a match for, if you played a match against somebody, let's forget what it was for. It doesn't matter at a pro tour. And you feel that they angle shot against you or stalled against you, basically pushed the limits of, of the rules um, in what could be considered cheating. If you could read their, you know, read their minds and know the intent. Like, would you ever vote for that person? It would be really hard for me to vote for that person. And that's kind of the reason why I was getting frustrated with the whole process, because I thought about how many people are in that exact same situation where they played a match against, you know, Hall of Fame candidate and you know, the match, they felt like they were cheated or angle shot or whatever in that match. And now they're not going to vote. The fact that so many people have the power to decide, uh, whether they want to vote for that person or not based on those factors like that to me means that the system is, is, is broken. It's bad. Yeah. Uh, I think like a, a big problem um, is this whole issue with slow play and stalling um, where slow play, like I'm saying slow play and stalling, but they are very different. One is I'm playing too slowly. One is I'm intentionally playing too slowly. Um, and I think it's kind of like a, an angle shoot free roll, similar to, you know, like I played against like a Katsuhiro Mori at the PT and on turn, turn three, he plays his third line in tanks. Then for 30 seconds later, he's like, I didn't play a land yet, right? And he's trying to play his fourth land. And like, he can always ask that. And the best I can do is say, yeah, you already played your land. Um, whereas the rules for slow play right now are you can take as much time as you want until a judge tells you to hurry up. So like if you're sideboarding or, shuffling or, or playing or whatever you're doing that if the judge hasn't told you to speed up, you're, there's nothing bad that can happen to you. Right. And I think that it's unfortunate, but a lot of like, when you're talking about like gold and platinum pros talking about smart people who understand the game and the system. And if they know that there's, that they can get this advantage without any possibility of being punished Unfortunately, I think there's a lot more people than people are, than are, you know, there's a lot more pros than people are willing to admit who will take advantage of that situation. And because it's so hard to catch someone doing it and actually penalize them, you have all these accusations that are unproven. And, you know, if one person's ready to throw someone on the bus, like there's kind of a group think mentality and it's pretty unfair, but I I don't, I don't know. Like I, I haven't decided who I'm voting for. I'm almost certainly voting for Seth. Um, I'm probably, well, actually, you were in the middle of giving your list, so why don't you give your list and I'll chime in. Um, so I'm definitely voting for Seth. I'm definitely voting for Suyoshi Ikeda. Uh, Lee Shitian is currently a question mark for me, although I have to admit that I think his stats are very good. And uh, I think that not having any uh, 
issues with the DCI, like no suspensions or anything. Uh, that's definitely notable. Um, the fourth player on my list is Jerry Thompson. Uh, yeah, he's on my radar. Yeah, I think that... Uh, I think that... Uh, so I value top eights more in the modern era than in the past. Uh, and I think that the fact that Jerry has a win and a finals in the past couple of years is very good, worth a lot. Um, the rest of his stats are pretty good. He has some top 16s. Uh, and over the past few years, um, the way that he interfaces with the game and the community is something that's really impressed me. Um, I know that he runs a Discord channel where if you, or um, a Patreon rather, where if you subscribe to the Patreon, he just gives you the deck list he's going to play in every tournament unfiltered. He's like, yeah, sure, here you go. Here's my info. Uh, I think that's really cool. I think that's the type of thing that says that I really care about the people watching me play and the community surrounding me rather than, you know, my personal results. And the fact that he can do that and still generate good results is kind of remarkable. So well, if, it, um, if it's a patron, people are paying for it, right? Yeah. But it's, so. it's, it's not, um, it, it, it's not inaccessible. If I want to get Jerry's decklist for the next pro tour, I can do it. I could just go to his Patreon and give him a dollar and I know what he's playing. Oh, that's a good advertisement. I hope he gets a lot of new subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's, that, um, that's my short list is, is definitely two, maybe three, maybe four. Okay. Um, yeah, I think my, my short list right now is, I think I'm going to vote for Ken Yukihiro. Did you say, did you say him, his name? No, I said Suyoshi Ikeda. He's the other yeah. Japanese player with four top eights. Although I do think Yukihiro is notable. I think four top eights is very good. I wish that Ken had more top 16s. Uh, but I really wouldn't be surprised if he kept playing and got another top eight, and then it would be really hard for me to not vote for him. Uh, he has six top 16s. It's not like he has... Well, actually, I'm not sure how accurate the statistics document is, because I already found like a big mistake somewhere. Um, yeah, so. it's, it's different from the Wizards one, because uh, from what I read on the Wizards one, which I believe to be accurate now that it was fixed, uh, is that he has four top eights and then two additional top 16s. Okay. So I think whatever document you're reading, it should be you should subtract the number of top eights to get the true top sixteens, and then so on and so forth. Okay. Uh, I, I I felt for a long time that four pro tour top eights was the baseline, and that doesn't mean I vote for everyone with four. It was like the baseline for me to consider you a, a legitimate candidate, and if you were three, there had to be a really good reason um, why I would vote for you. I voted for Arcade in the past. I might vote for him again. The argument for him is really just uh, a, a contribution to the game and via longevity. Like he played for a long time. Had he was one of the first. I don't, I don't really know the history too well, but I, from my, um, from how I viewed the Pro Tour as a player, he was one of the first Japanese players to have success outside of Japan. Um, like not just top eighting Japanese GPs. He would like top eight a European GP or or top eight multiple pro tours. Um, so like I've voted for him before and also not voted for him. It's a little sad that he doesn't have kind of the, the voting support that maybe he deserves, but he also was not really ever considered among the best players, which 
is an important criteria for a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure about him. Uh, I think Yukihiro has good stats and he's a good player. Uh, probably going to vote for him. There's a few other. I would like to vote for Yvonne Flock because I think he's a great player. He has, he has uh, great stats, uh, only three top eights, though. Which um, And his results are almost exclusively based on the Pro Tour, and they're still very good because he doesn't really go to GPs. So that's, I think that's noteworthy as well. Um, there's a few others that I, I would consider. Uh, I, I would consider Jerry. Um, I don't personally like to put a lot of weight into non-magic contributions, um, like, like content-related. Um, I think that it's a choice people make to sort of brand themselves and, and sort of becomes their job to produce content. And I don't, I don't think that necessarily always means a contribution to the game. Like it's a, it's just like their life decision. Like someone who, you know, has a full-time job and doesn't produce content, but is a, a better player with better results is still to me a better candidate for the hall of fame. That's my personal view. Um, but I think, you know, Jerry, he's been a good player for a long time and has good results and I, I'll consider him. I'm not sure. I'm not going to use all five of my votes. I don't think this year. Yeah, I'm not really interested in using all five of my votes either. John, what, when you said it's it's a Hall of Fame, going back to, to before, uh, so what type of like fame accomplishments uh, were, were you referring to? That, that okay. like someone that was not necessarily you know the best, but that that would push him over to the top because he's he's famous for for something. I think what I really meant by that is is that okay, so it's it's natural for people to consider uh, play skill. A lot of people value someone being a good player over a lot of other things, um, and that's the kind of thing that is is sort of measured by statistics like median finish, top sixteens, top thirty twos. Um, but when you think about you know somebody who's uh, achieved something in math, like. I don't think it's that relevant that I finished 16th versus 20th at a pro tour. I, I mean, I didn't make top eight. I mean, I've been, I've played matches where if, like I played a match against Oiso where if I win on ninth, if he wins, he's top eight and I lost. So I was 18th, but if I just had a different matchup and drew that match, it's a top 16. Like it's kind of like, I don't think that really, I it basically doesn't change how well I did in that tournament, whether it's a top 16 or top 32. Because we're all trying to top eight, and that's the thing that matters. Um, so, if you like, if you think about like who had a good season last year, you think about who made top eight. You don't, for the most part, I don't. Cons- I consider things like player of the year race. I think that's uh, a good measure of how dominant someone's season was. Um, but I just, I don't like trying to decide how good a player someone was based on these statistics that aren't really what people are striving for. Um, so when I say Hall of Fame, I mean, the, the person, the people who had a good tournament in the public per- perception are the people who made top eight. That's the line we've decided that matters. That's the line that I'm going to consider. Um, I think that's really what I meant. Not that I would elevate someone because they're a famous personality. Right. That's what I wanted clarification on. And that's yeah. like if, if non-contributions that, that, that help shape and make it in. When he well, made it in. Like, there's a lot of people in that spot. Like, the, the year that Chapin got elected, I, was, I would not have voted for him. I don't think I had a vote yet. But then he 
you know, then he had a great season and, and I would have voted like he won a pro tour. And after that, I think he's absolutely a deserving candidate based on his results. So for me, like there's a lot of, basically I'm always a season behind voting people in. Um, like I might not, I didn't vote for Yuza. And I think right now Yuza is a legitimate hall of fame. Like I think he deserves to be in the hall of fame. Now he just got in a year before I would have voted him in. And that might continue to happen. It might not because they increase the threshold. You need, you still need 60% of the vote, right? I'm going to have to check the stats. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they increase it from 50 to 60 based on feedback from the, from people in the hall of fame, I think. Yeah. That's and, my understanding also is that you need, it, it was 40 and now it's 60. So maybe the, the, there's a natural watering down of the candidates as like the best players in the world. Once they get in, it's not like they stop being the best players in the world. So the next year, you have to consider people who weren't the best players in the world before. And you, that once in a while, you have someone like who sort of cracks the, like they have their 10 year anniversary or, you know, they, they put on the ballot like, like Seth. And, you know, he's, I think Seth probably gets in this year, um, you know, assuming this controversy dies down. Um, but for the most part, you have people that you didn't vote for before and now you're reconsidering them. Uh, like I didn't vote for, for Herbert Holtz or, or Marine Leibert. And now like, do I vote for them? They don't have better stats. They haven't played. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a tough call. Yeah. That's kind of like how I was uh, with my ballot last year or maybe the year before. I don't remember. It's all kind of starting to run together. Um, there was one year where I voted for uh, Mark Herberholtz and then uh, I, I voted for him saying that, uh, you know, I think his resume is good enough to get in. Uh, but if it's clear from the voting that uh, the community doesn't think that he should be in, then I'll reconsider uh, my vote next year. So, you know, it's, it's kind of weird. It feels, you know, a little inconsistent, but I voted for some people uh, on my previous ballots that are on the ballot again this year and i'm not voting for them this year yeah yeah i think i did that one year i voted for a kid one year and the next year i didn't and then i think the year after i voted for him so (laughs) (laughs) and he's back he's probably back it it depends on like what you value i think and i i think he's a borderline candidate and his like unlike someone like you know like seth for example or this or jerry or who they're probably going to keep playing. They're probably going to get more results. Like, okay, Jerry might not get in this year. I would be, I would basically feel very strongly that at some point he will be in the hall of fame. Um, that's so, but someone like Ikeda, he's going to fade because he's, he, people don't know his career and his stats are not going to improve. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm leaning towards voting for him actually. I guess just from this conversation, I feel like it's kind of sad that he won't get in even if I vote for him, but yeah, I mean, I feel that way every year, but I made the decision to vote for him every opportunity that I could. So I'm certainly not going to change that. I still feel the same connection to his career that I do that I did in 2016. Yeah. So John, why wouldn't you vote for for Herbalts considering he has four top eights and a win? Uh, well, like I said, I, I consider four top eights to be the minimum where I would consider you barring extraneous circumstances. And 
So part of it might be that I didn't really, uh, as he started to have successes right when I quit the game for the first time. So I'm not familiar with him being viewed among the best players in the game. I know that a lot of American people who played at that era do feel that for a period of time he was among the best. Um, but I, he doesn't like he doesn't have a lot of pro points. He didn't play really long enough to cement his his legacy. I would say. Um, and it comes and basically like his stats outside of the four top eights are are based on that fact, not as good as other candidates, I feel. Um I think it's hard to vote for someone who was like a great player for two years but then didn't really do much else. And I, I, I don't know his stats to the dot to the dot, so like maybe it was over three years or something. Um but certainly like he wasn't he wasn't at the forefront in my consciousness for and doesn't really have like the the longevity stats for me to feel that he really left a strong legacy. Um, and I feel it's like really hard to vote for him and not Marine because they basically have identical stats and Marine. Like why, why would you vote for Marine at that point? Yeah, it's, it's pretty close. Like um, I think, like I think 200 points was for the long time, like the bare minimum uh, consideration which is why like I'm not, I've not been close to voting for Pakula. Um, and pro points are tricky because like they, they've adjusted how much you get uh, for tournaments. Like it used to be, you get minimum two. Now you get minimum three. They used to have more pro tours than they do now. Um, stuff like that. So it's hard to really know. Um, but like, I think, I think in order to be like, if you're talking about baseball or something, someone who leads the league in batting average for two years and then doesn't play after that is not really going to be considered for the Hall of Fame. He's going to be considered someone who had two good years. Um, and I wanted to see more, like, I don't want to see someone who barely met the criteria uh, in terms, or my criteria of like, at the time it was 200 pro points and, and four top eights. And he's like bare minimum on that. And I don't really have those other reasons to vote for him. Uh, so that's, that's why I haven't considered him really. There are people who do claim he has those other reasons like that he was considered among the best in the world for a period of time, which is something I do value. Um, but yeah, that's where I am. Yeah. But if it's too short of a period of time, then, then I'm starting to, to, to feel like I'm agreeing with you as well. Um, like, for example, when Huey came back, I, I didn't vote from the first year because my experience with Huey uh, in the Pro Tour was that for about two years, he was considered the best limited player. One of the, the best probably team limited. It was him and Kai for limited. It was him and John, but like he was, in, he was the big three. It was, you know, Huey for limited and for constructed and then Kai and John. And, but he didn't, then he quit the game and he didn't really have that many pro points and he came back and I'm like, well, you know, he needs to sort of prove that it wasn't a, like he doesn't have that, that long period of time where he was dominant. He just has a short period. Um, so I, I didn't vote. I don't know if I'd have vote. I wasn't going to vote for him the year he got in. And then immediately the next year I was going to vote for him. So he got in basically season before I would have put him there, but he's clearly a deserving candidate. Um, and I feel that, you know, that's what I would need to see from Mark or Marine for me to vote for them is like showing, I don't know if they have any intention of doing this, but it's, I'm not going to be swayed by like a public campaign at this point. I think he would need to come back and be good. And then, then I would vote for him. And that, that might not be something he's considering. Andy, are you are you interested at all in this Hall of Fame stuff? And and 
What player comes to mind for you at, in sports as someone that had a, a few good seasons but, but win McDonald? Derek Rose? Derek Rose <laughs> is immediately who I thought of. Torres ACL ruined his career. <laughs> the veterans um, now. I don't really know who Derek Rose. I think he's a basketball player. He, he won MVP yeah. like out of nowhere yeah. for the Chicago Bulls. And then like in the middle of like the LeBron MVP era. And then just got hurt, never good again. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to vote someone like that for Hall of Fame. Like you recognize he had a great year. But people have great years, you know? Like, it's possible to win two, pro, like, top eight, two pro tours in a season and not be Hall of Fame worthy. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking for, like, a more consistent showing. Yeah, if, if, if I had a vote, it would probably start with Seth, uh, Li Xijian, and Jerry. And then from there, I would consider others. So why, why do you put Jerry up there? Like, what's your reasoning? Because, like, if... Well, if, like... I think he's one of the most important people to ever be in the game of magic. I think he grew, he grows the game of magic such a large amount that I think people already consider him insane. Like, is, is he actually a better player if he top, top eights another pro tour? I don't think so. Like, I think people have it set on how fantastic Jerry is at mm-hmm. playing magic and how great he is at deck building. And I think one more pro tour top eight isn't going to change how good I think Jerry is. So I think I would vote for him now. And I think the community stuff is he's like Willie Edel got in with, with better stats for the, the top eights than Jerry, but the community thing was something everyone focused on. And if people are going to vote Willie Edel in with like fewer GP stats, I think fewer top 16s as well. Um, probably. Yeah. And, uh, I think Jerry is about if you're going to give me a three top three PT top eight candidate, it's like they have to be exactly what Jerry is. What about somebody like um, like Sam Black is on on the ballot with three top eights. Brad Nelson's on the ballot with three top eights. I would consider those two. Those those two are like considered some of the best deck builders of all time. And I think that matters when you are when someone says like Brad Nelson for the last like five eight years is the best standard deck builder in the world like that that means something that's a legacy and that's something that is hall of fame worthy when you say this person dominated this era and was the best possible in standard grand prix in this long era then i think that's hall of fame worthy that's a legacy that's something that makes them special compared to other players and like i just i keep wanting to reiterate like if brad nelson top eight's one more pro tour i don't I'm not going to all of a sudden be like, he's infinitely better now because of this one more result. And I know that we put so much focus on the top eights, but it's just, it's just the way I feel. And honestly, that's why you guys say that the, the voting is biased as all hell, because it's just how I feel and everyone feels differently. <laughs> yeah, but no, like that, the reason it's, it's like that is like, what about someone like Carlos Romao, who has three top eights, 350 pro points? Um, I think he won Worlds. Um, and he's someone who's not in the American consciousness, but if you, you know, talk to anyone in Brazil, you know, he's, you know, there's PV and Carlos, right? Yeah, there's, there's a, a horrible, really, like, old boys club feel to the Pro Tour Hall of Fame that I really don't like. And it sucks that people like him and people like Li Xitian don't get considered as often just because they aren't American, because the Americans want to vote all of their friends in 
because they were the best players with playing with some of the best players. It's an unfortunate reality of the current way that the Pro Tour Hall of Fame works. But I, those particular, so I wasn't, I'm not like familiar with like how well regarded Carlos Ramal was, but like Brad Nelson and Sam Black regarded as some of the best deck builders of all time. I would consider them. I'm not sure if I'm going to vote for them. And it feels weird because I feel like part of the reason I would consider not voting for them is because like, I'm pretty sure they're going to top eight another pro tour and then you can just vote for them then. Mm-hmm. Like, let, let's say they both had quit magic. Then I would actually consider voting for them more strongly because then I know like this is it for them. Similar to the Pakula argument of like, you know, he's not going to get this other top eight. This is it. This is well, the, he's playing. I mean, Chris is still playing. Yeah, but you, you, understand, you understand my point, though. Like, yeah. very likely, this is this is his resume going forward. Yeah, I like think Ikeda, those, for example. I think their resumes will get better. So I think it's like safe not to vote for them and vote for them later. But like, once again, gaming the system, bad system. Yeah, but I think Hall of Fame. It's supposed to be ambiguous and controversial. That's just the way Hall of Fames are. So. If it was straightforward, we wouldn't have discussions about it. <laughs> uh, uh, now you got me think of Terrell Owens <laughs> not showing up to all these speech. Yeah, and now they changed the rules where you have to show up to get inducted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really petty of the NFL Hall of Fame, I will not lie. They look <laughs> real bad in this whole thing. Well, I mean, it's the first time they've looked bad about anything, right? The NFL? <laughs> Well, this is the NFL Hall of Fame, separate entity. I wish they had anthems at the Pro Tour so we could take a knee. <laughs> and uh, I read something else sports related with, with Hall was uh, M- the MLB is this year. They're going to make uh, the Hall of Fame ballots uh, public. Um, I thought that that's interesting. Um, that's going to start uh, a lot of discussion. I think, I think in hockey, I, they still just show the percentages, I think. Um, but uh, do you think they should be public in Magic, John? Um, do I think they should be public? I think if they, a lot of players do make them the public. A lot of people make them public. I think if you saw everyone's ballot, you would be blown away by the amount of bias. So maybe it's not good. But maybe it is good for that reason. <laughs> you think it would change? I mean. So there's probably like 12 people on the ballot that you can make a case for and you could say good things about. I mean, if you live in Portugal, you can say, I vote for Marcio. I think he, you know, either he made a mistake with the peaking one time or like he got, you know, or a judge had it out for him and that he's been a clean player with a bad rap. You could say that. And, you know, just like you could say that the accusations against Lee Chan are, are legitimate or not. And I... I feel like you can find a way to vote for a lot of people on this list and not have it be like ridiculous. So people will find a way to defend what they want to do, I think. Yeah, that's a lot of my frustration with it is that there's just, there's no way to get around the bias. Uh, but both of you, uh, Alex and John, both of you have ballots? Uh, yeah. What's the, what's the condition for you guys to have ballots again? Is this career pro points? Are you saying I'm not valuable to the community? <laughs> <laughs> I 
not your words, not mine, but... Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I think you need 150, or I think they raised it to 200, maybe? Do you know, Alex? Right. Is it 150 uh, or 200? I don't know. Uh, I know that I have... I, I When they raised it to 150, that's when I got it back. Uh, so, as far as I know, it's still 150. Okay. Yeah, so something I mean, like that, 150. I mean, they do give random you know, content producers, podcasters, uh, all fan votes as well, John. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm saying, like, how do you know what category I'm in? How do you know it's for, for my accomplishments on the Pro Tour as opposed to my contributions to the community? It could be either. <laughs> I don't know why laughing. <laughs> it could be, it could be. Um, I, before this year, I, you know, Jerry's one of my favorite players, like top, top three players of all time. One of uh, a good friends of mine. That's why I'm offering my place uh, for him to stay when he comes down for DreamHack and uh, said he would. But like previous years, I never voted for him. And then he went on to, to win a PT, finish second right after he almost went back to back. And uh, I don't know. I, every time I, I feel like if I voted for him previous years, that I was just way, way too biased. He just didn't have anywhere near the results and all the community contributions. But, but you made a good point, John. Um, I mean, he, he made it. Like he was an SCG writer. Um, he was grinding. He, he built his brand by crushing. Um, all, to me, he, he, he rose when he started on the internet, at least crushing all those SCGs. He, he won, like, he was the first to win. I think he won the first Invitational, or, or he was the first to win back-to-back, or, or even multiple times. Or something like that, and um, and then he, he's a writer beyond that. And but like, how much of that was also uh, your content argument? Um, well, yeah, I think if you if you care thing. about that kind of thing, like if you think um, being an important person in the community is of a lot of value for Hall of Fame consideration, I think Jerry's at the top of the list. Um, and I think that a lot of people do consider that, and he'll get votes. Uh, I don't know if he'll get in this year, maybe. Um, yeah, I think there's a there's a chance he gets in. I think I think when I do vote for him because of that, I'm not being fair to the other guys like you, you mentioned. Like I don't know the contributions these other guys made. Like even Willie Edel is just from what people were saying that you know he was a huge huge thing in, in his home country, but like I don't really know what what he actually did. Right, so like Carlos Romal, like, all these examples he came up with. You know, I I don't I mean, know what these people did. You can make an argument that, that it's up to the, the uh, committee that decides who gets a vote to make sure that you have cross-sections of the community represented and that it's okay to have a little bit of your personal bias on what you've been exposed to. Like, from your perspective, Jerry's been a huge force in the community um, and, uh, and has made a lot of contributions in that area, besides just being a great deck builder and player, um, and that somebody who lives in Japan might feel that way you know, about Ken Yukuhiro, for example. I mean, I don't know if he has or not, but uh, you can't know that from the other side, so all you can do is represent what you've been exposed to. That's a good point. I feel like, again, like, Jerry, to me, was one of the most, if not the most accessible, high-level player uh, online or Twitter or just in real life. Um, I felt that way, even though, like, he's mentioned many times that prior to that, Prior to 2010, when I when I met him, he he was a was a huge asshole. 
or was a jackass before that. I can't even imagine that knowing, like starting to know him from 2010 and on forward. And uh, yeah, well, I just feel like he's, he's a stud when it comes to the community part. Um, okay, let's let's wrap up the show. Thank thank you so much, guys, for uh, for chiming in. Alex, anything that you want to plug or, or anything we can look forward to you from your end? And it doesn't have to be magic related, and it can be a competitor to, to face up these games. I don't care. <laughs> um, I wish I had something cool to plug here, but I don't. Uh, I might go to Grand Prix Richmond. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, people will say hi to you if you have going there. John, what about you? Uh, yeah, I have nothing to plug right now. Um, I'll be at GPLA. Um, I'm scaling back my, my Grand Prix attendance because of the system and my motivation to play. So we'll see. I don't know. What about you, Andy? Go anywhere. Uh, GP Detroit and also the RPTQ in September. All righty. Right, going to give a shout out to our first strike uh, nation producers, Derek Pike, Thomas Eaton, Jonathan Good, Matthew Kelly, and Sasha Papel. Thank you so much. You can contribute to the show at patreon.com slash first strike. And uh, make sure to like, subscribe to this YouTube channel. Uh, shout out to everyone in the chat, for anyone that is going to be listening. This was a mammoth episode. Alex and John really broke down the OP announcements and, and gave a lot of food for thought for people who have a Hall of Fame vote. Uh, myself included. So thank you so much guys again. And uh, for all of us, we'll, I and Andy will like to see you next Monday. So thanks guys. All right. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. See ya.